Howdy y'all, welcome to In The Sticks, the podcast about something, nothing, and everything all at once. Hope you guys had a fantastic couple of weeks. I decided not to record a show last week because I'm still dealing with still dealing with the sinus infection. I get it twice a year, every year. Death taxes and sinus infections, that's what I always say. <laughs> um, I didn't really have a voice last week. Uh, you know, and I was the only one at work, and being a supervisor, I had to be there, so I was just kind of making it through last week. I feel better now. Uh, you know, we we dug out of the snow. I, you know, it, it was just, it was crazy. We haven't seen anything like that in Oklahoma in a really long time. Obviously, the temperatures we haven't seen since probably the 1940s, I think is what the news was saying. And snow amounts, that was a record snow amount that we got. We we got, I don't know, I think it was about 26 inches or so of snow from January through, through the end of last week. And it was a lot of snow. <laughs> My I have a work vehicle that I get to take home, and it was buried in the snow. I couldn't get it out. I had to drive my truck to work because it's four-wheel drive. And I would say by the third day, the roads were, were clear enough. I could have driven it to work, but our driveway is gravel, and it's about 150 feet long. And I couldn't get my work truck out of the driveway because it's only two-wheel drive. So I had to drive my personal vehicle to work, which is not a big deal. And when the when the snow finally melted, it was, uh, you know, it was really muddy. So, um, you know, I, I tried to... I tried to drive my work truck out of the mud and couldn't do it, so eventually I had to go get a tow strap and tow my work vehicle out of the mud so that I could drive it to work. But alas, it is unstuck, and I'm back to driving it to work. And it's pretty much dried out. You know, we had, in some in some spots, we had almost 18 inches of snow on the ground, and it's now finally all gone, which is good. But, you know, I, the, the chickens the chickens actually did really well. I was surprised. I was kind of worried about them because I, I don't have a heat lamp for them. They're, they're too far from the house. They're probably 75 to 100 yards from the house. And I have a 100-foot extension cord that I was using for blue to keep him from freezing. And uh, I had a 100-foot extension cord that I was using for the barn cats to keep them from freezing, um, but I didn't have enough extension cord left to go all the way out to the chicken coop, so, you know, I was kind of hoping that they would keep themselves warm, and they did. They persevered. They they did really well. They, In fact, they kept laying. Even when, when the air temperature was below zero, we still were getting three or four eggs a day out of them, so I was actually pretty surprised about that, but the downside is, you know, their water would freeze every day and we had to go get the eggs every day because if we left the eggs out there they would freeze and crack open so I would have to track through the snow to get out there and there are some little gullies in between here and the chicken coop and <laughs> I would step down into those and I would be um, up to my crotch in snow to be honest with you it was it was pretty crazy I mean, I've never seen snow like that before in Oklahoma so that was pretty wild but like I mentioned blue made it through okay the first night, when the temperatures were in the single digits, um, I came out in the morning and I went to I went to feed him and break up the ice in his water and give him some fresh water. 
and you know he's older and he's got some joint issues and I noticed that he was he was kind of laboring coming out of his doghouse in the morning I have an igloo doghouse for him and I cut out the top of it and put a heat lamp in the top of it so it would give him some heat but the the ambient air temperature was just ridiculous and and I don't think any heat lamp could have kept him warm enough to avoid it so uh, when he came out of that doghouse and I saw him laboring his elbow, I was pretty concerned about him. So the air temperature that particular day was um, just below freezing, but I knew the next night it was going to get down to about 10 below, 12 below is what they were calling for. So um, I, I called one of my buddies who's on uh, the canine unit at the local police department, and I asked him if he had any extra crates, and fortunately he did, so... I ran by his house and grabbed a crate and I put it in the shed and I moved the heat lamp out to the shed to get it warming up and then that night before I left for work I put Blue in the crate in the shed and he did great. He came out the next morning and he was just as spry as he normally is and I didn't notice any favoring of the elbow that I noticed the previous morning so I did that for the next couple of nights. Um, it was actually kind of funny slash gross. I don't know, however you want to look at it. But the second morning when I went out there, I took the heat lamp and put it back out in his igloo doghouse outside. And I left him outside for the day because the air temperature was going to be in the in the upper teens, low 20s. And he does pretty good. I mean, he's a Belgian Malinois and he's from Belgium. So he's used to the cold. So I left him outside during the day. And when I came back, I didn't notice this in the morning. But when I came back and started getting his kennel ready for that night I noticed that he had pooped in it so <laughs> I went to clean out the poop and it was a literal poopsicle it was frozen I couldn't I couldn't get it out it was frozen to the crate so um, I stuck the heat lamp back in there let it warm up and then the following morning I was able to to clean the poopsicle out because it had thawed but like I said the chickens did great the cats did fine they actually you know we have a little a little shelter for them and it's really it's mainly to keep them or give them an area to hide if any predators come out at night uh, and I noticed that they weren't using it I had the heat lamp set up in there and it kept the water thawed which was good but they weren't using the little shelter that we had for them they were going under the house there's a little opening in the skirting of the trailer house and they would climb through that opening in the skirting and hide under the house at night because underneath the house is fairly warm so so the cats manage really well as as well we didn't have any major issues our our uh, our well our water well never froze up which is good because we had several friends with wells who were having issues with their pipes freezing up and their pump freezing up uh, we didn't have that problem so that's good and we never lost, I say, I say we never lost electricity. So many of you know that there were rolling blackouts throughout the Southern Plains because the the usage was just over overloading the system and they didn't, oddly enough, they didn't have enough electricity to go around. And so they were having to issue rolling blackouts to conserve electricity so that they would have enough to go around. And, I, you know, there were some people who were without power for an hour or two hours at a time. And that, honestly, that would have been devastating for us because we, we live in a tin can with single-pane windows, and I can tell you the insulation in this trailer house is not very good. So if we would have lost power, we would have been, 
we would have been in bad shape because the the night that it got really cold, I think the air temperature was probably minus 12 and the wind chill was minus 30. Um, well, hello. Somebody just sent a message. Um, so anyways, the, the air temperature, I'm sorry, the wind chill was like minus 30, minus 31 that night. And when we woke up in the morning, the temperature inside of our house was 55 degrees. And that was with the heater running all night. So... So if we would have lost power, we would have, I mean, we would absolutely had to find somewhere else to stay. Um, thankfully, you know, we have family around the area we could have stayed with, but um, that, that would have been really bad. However, like I said, the power, it went out, it blinked for maybe a couple of seconds, but other than that, we never lost power. We were never subject to the rolling blackouts, so that's good. Um, if you were, I feel for you. Hopefully you made it through okay, but other than the heater running for about 200 hours straight because it just couldn't keep up. We, we, we actually made it out fairly unscathed. We didn't have any pipes burst. Like I said, the well never froze up. The heater ran the whole time. It couldn't do a great job heating the place, but it did enough to keep us, uh, you know, keep the house livable, I guess. And so, yeah, that was Snowpocalypse 2021. It was, it was pretty crazy, but, but we made it through. And, you know, we, <laughs> I think I mentioned on the last podcast, we, we had the construction company lined up to start dirt work, uh, I guess two weeks ago, but there was so much snow on the ground and the ground was so wet that they couldn't bring the equipment out. They, you know, the snow finally thawed and so we, we called our our builder and we said, "Hey, are, are you guys going to start on dirt work?" And he and he basically said, "Well, <laughs> the uh, the heavy equipment crew can't get their equipment out of the yard because it's so muddy. So it's going to be a couple days until it dries up before they can do that." And then he said, "You might want to call the title company that you're closing with because this is this is something to keep in mind if you're building your own home. Um, there are some title companies that will allow you to start work dirt work." before you close on your loan as long as they don't start anything to do with the house itself like uh you know pouring the piers or pouring the stem wall you know they can't start the foundation they can't start the actual construction of the home but they can start dirt work with some title companies but our builder said you might want to reach out to your title company and make sure that this is something we can actually do so so we did. We found out who was going to be our, our title company for closing, and we reached out to them, and they said, no, absolutely not. You cannot touch it until we have title insurance, and you won't have title insurance until a few days after you close. So, uh, again, that got pushed back a little bit more. Seems like if it's not one thing, it's another, but we're, we're slowly but surely getting there. In fact, past Friday at 8 o'clock, we closed on our loan, finally. We got everything lined out with the bank, with the appraiser, with the builder, and we sat down and we signed all the paperwork, and now we have to wait until Wednesday. You have a basically a three-day period where they get all the paperwork lined out, they get title insurance, and all that good stuff, and then on that third day, which will be Wednesday, so by the time you're listening to this, it'll be tomorrow, we will... We will have the funding, we will have a bank account with the money to build, and we can hopefully get started forthwith. But as luck would have it, 
on Thursday there is a 60% chance of rain, <laughs> so that might delay us yet another day or two, but at this point, you know, I'm not really surprised. Whatever. I mean, if that's all, if that's all we have to worry about at this point is a day or two of rain, I'm okay with that. The, the concerning part is now we are into March. March 3rd, Wednesday, is the day the funding is supposed to hit. And we live in central Oklahoma, and it's spring, so we can anticipate probably a thunderstorm, a rain shower, uh, at the very least one day a week through the next probably two months. And, of course, when we hit May, it's severe weather season. Uh, we were really hoping to get dried out, uh, dried in before tornado season hit, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And it, you know, it's just crazy because I started this podcast at about the same time we started the process with the bank. You know, those earlier podcasts I was talking about hoping to, hoping to be dried in before the rainy season hit. Um, now I'm just hoping to get started before the rainy season hits. And so I think we're going to probably get some significant delays. If, if the winter weather is any indication of how the spring weather is going to be, it's going to be a wet spring, and it'll probably be a pretty active, severe weather pattern. So I'm just hoping that I'm wrong. But, you know, if you, if you set yourself up to be disappointed, then you only can go up from there. So, so I'm preparing to be delayed several times. Early on in the process with the with the spring rain season and the severe weather season, I hope I'm wrong, but like I said, prepare for the worst, expect the best, and we'll go from there. I'm we're all set, you know. I've got the the carport moved out of the driveway so that they can cut the driveway and pour gravel, and we're we're ready to hit the ground running. So hopefully we can do that this week. I, I you know. They have 50 hours of dirt work set aside for us, so we've got about a week's worth of dirt work, and then we'll start the actual build process. So fingers crossed. I, I really hope that uh, that we can get the ball rolling and get this house built because we are ready. So moving on, this week I'm going to highlight another female serial killer, and her name is Eileen Warnos. And she was active in 1989-1990 time frame in Florida. And she's a pretty interesting case. Uh, not, not necessarily just for the murders that she committed, but because of what happened after her arrest. It's, it's kind of interesting. But again, her name is Eileen Warnus. And I got a lot of my information from an autobiography that she wrote with the help of her friend named Dawn. And she wrote Dawn a bunch of letters from prison. And Dawn used those letters to kind of highlight her her life. And Dawn, Dawn and Eileen were actually childhood friends growing up in Michigan. So she kind of adds her perspective about Eileen's childhood as well. So uh, pretty interesting stuff. So Eileen was born on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Her mother was Diane Warnus, and her father was Lee Pittman. Her father was 16 years old and her mom was 14 years old when her mom got pregnant with Eileen. And after, after Lee and Diane found out that Diane was pregnant, they ended up eloping and getting married 
um, when Diane was only 14 years old. But it wasn't long after they eloped and that Lee found out Diane was pregnant that he took off and joined the military. And so, as a result, Eileen never met him because he joined the military and left before she was born. And then after she was born, it was discovered that Lee uh, actually had schizophrenia and he was a pedophile. And he wound up in prison by the time that Eileen was born and he ended up hanging himself in prison in January of 1969 when Eileen was just 13. She never went to visit him in prison. She never knew her dad. And in fact, her mom, Diane abandoned Eileen and her older brother Keith when she was very young and she left them with her biological parents Lori and Britta Warnes in Michigan and her grandparents eventually legally adopted her uh, and her brother that being Eileen and Keith apparently growing up both Lori which is the grandfather and, and Britta were both alcoholics and they, they were both verbally and physically abusive towards Eileen. This is according to Eileen, of course. And by the time Eileen was 11 years old, she was already engaging in sexual behaviors in exchange for things like drugs and cigarettes and booze. And then by the time she was 14 years old, she had gone to a party and she was trying to hitchhike her way back home and she was raped. Now she believes, there's no proof of this, and this is based on her letters to Diane, I'm sorry, to Dawn, but she believes that the suspect was actually an accomplice of Lori, her grandfather, who was basically trying to teach her a lesson for sneaking out and going to this party. She actually became pregnant as a result of this rape, and immediately after, after she had the baby, she put it up for adoption, um, but while she was pregnant, she was sent to live at a home for unwed mothers because her grandparents didn't want to deal with it. Uh, like I said, she gave birth to uh, a baby boy in 1971. She was 15 at the time she gave birth to the child, and she ended up giving the boy up for adoption. After she had the baby, she returned to her grandparents' house and her relationship with her grandparents uh, started to really deteriorate after that. She began to run away frequently. She was heavy into alcohol and drugs at such a young age. And her, parent, her grandparents, technically her parents because they did adopt her, they couldn't really control her. So initially they sent her to live in a juvenile facility, sort of like a shelter, and that didn't really work for her, so they sent her away to live at the Adrian Girls Training School. Later that year, when Eileen was still just 15 years old, her grandmother, Britta, died. And Eileen kind of described Britta, her grandmother, as her only real ally. Um, she kind of tried to protect Eileen from Lori and his abusive behavior. But when Britta died, uh, Lori kicked her out almost immediately and he told her not to come back. So she left for good at the age of 15 years old. And since she was trading uh, sexual acts for money and for other things, like I said, like cigarettes and, and booze and drugs, since she was 11 years old, that was really the only way she knew how to survive, how to make money, how to, to get by. And so... Uh, that's what she did. 
starting at 15 years old, she she began her career, so to speak, as a prostitute, and she would trade sexual favors for money. She would sleep in abandoned cars, and more frequently, she would just sleep outside in the woods underneath some trees. Uh, like I said, you know, her closest friend at the time was Dawn. Her name was Dawn Botkins. They grew up together in Michigan. They became really close after Eileen got kicked out at the age of 15. And though they often engaged in, you know, like general mischief together, uh, Dawn tried to really protect Eileen from from predators, uh, more specifically some of their group of friends that tended to be more cruel towards Eileen. And she tried to protect her because Eileen was doing what she normally does to try to earn their affection and whatever money she would earn, she would also spend on her friends so that she could, you know, basically be part of the group. She wanted to fit in. And so she would use the money that she got from prostituting to buy them things so that they would accept her essentially having no place to really call home. She started to hitchhike around the country and obviously, you know, she would, she would repay her, her ride givers with sexual favor, favors, and she wound up in Florida and was quickly arrested and convicted of armed robbery in 1981 when she was 25 years old. But this wasn't her first run-in with the law. She was actually arrested multiple times between the time that she got kicked out and the time that she arrived in Florida and was convicted of a robbery charge. She was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado in 1974 when she was just 18 years old for DUI, disorderly conduct and discharging a firearm from a moving vehicle, and she was later charged with failure to appear for that case. She hitchhiked to Florida in 1976 where she met a yacht club president named Louis Fell who was 49 years older than her, and they ended up eloping after just a couple of weeks of dating. But while she was married to Lewis, she kept getting into confrontations at the yacht club and was even arrested for assault. She eventually struck Lewis with his own cane, and as a result, he ended up getting a restraining order against her within weeks of them eloping, and she left to go back to Michigan. She immediately got into trouble when she went back to Michigan. After she went to a bar and wound up throwing a pool cue, uh, at the bartender's head. In July of 1976, her brother Keith died, and Eileen received a $10,000 life insurance payment, and she used that money to pay a, an outstanding fine that she had for a DUI arrest, and she also used the money to hire a lawyer to annul her marriage after only nine weeks to Lewis Fell, and then she bought a new car, which she ended up crashing within weeks of buying it, probably under the influence of an intoxicant. And that series of events catches us back up to the robbery arrest. So on May 20th, 1981, she was arrested for stealing $35 in cash and two packs of smokes for a convenience store. That was the robbery arrest that she had. And she served 13 months in prison for the crime. After she was released uh, for that prison sentence, she was listed as a suspect in a crime or arrested for a crime in 1984, 85, 86 and 87 for crimes ranging from writing bogus checks to petty theft to assault and all the way up to robbery again. During this time, 
Eileen met who she described as the love of her life in 1986 when a woman named Tyria Moore, who was a hotel maid at one of the hotels that Eileen stayed at, met her at a bar. They began a dating relationship, but Eileen kept prostituting herself because she wanted Tyria to be well taken care of. Now, Tyria didn't like the fact that Eileen was prostituting herself not even from a relationship aspect. It was more from from an uh, from the perspective of, hey, I care about you as a person. You shouldn't be doing this to yourself. But this is the only way that Eileen knew how to make money. So she continued to work as a prostitute, and she would use the money that she earned as a prostitute to help take care of Tyria. Now, Eileen committed her first murder on November 30th of 1989. She picked up an electronics store owner by the name of Richard Dick Mallory, and they had an arrangement to exchange sex for money. Now, Mallory was a convicted sex offender, which Eileen would try to use this later in her her court defense, uh, saying that he was a violent man, he was a convicted sex offender, uh, but ultimately they would not allow... They would not allow her to bring up this defense in court, or they would not allow her to bring up Mallory's, the victim's, criminal past in court. So, um, according to Eileen, Mallory allegedly sodomized her and brutally beat her during their encounter after he drove her to a secluded area to complete their transaction. So, in self-defense, according to Eileen, she shot Mallory several times and dumped his body in a wooded area in Volusia County, Florida. Eileen would later say that, like I said, she killed Mallory in self-defense following the brutal assault. But again, the court would not allow her to bring up Mallory's past in her defense. Her next murder was on May 19th of 1990. A construction worker named David Andrew Spears, 47 years old, picked up Eileen uh, again for a sexual transaction and his naked body was later discovered 12 days after their encounter on the side of Route 19 in Citrus County, Florida. He'd been shot six times with a 22 pistol, which was Eileen's weapon of choice. Charles Carskadden was 40 years old when his body was discovered on June 6, 1990 in Pasco County, Florida. Charles was a part-time rodeo worker. He was also shot nine times with a 22 caliber pistol. His naked body was found badly decomposed, wrapped in an electric blanket. And witnesses saw Eileen and Tyria in possession of Charles's car and also allegedly pawned a firearm that belonged to Charles. 65-year-old Peter Seams was a retri- retired merchant seaman, and in June of 1990, he left Jupiter, Florida en route to Arkansas. His vehicle was located on July 4th of 1990 in Orange Springs, Florida. Tyree and Eileen were also seen abandoning that car that belonged to Peter, and Eileen's palm print, <clears throat> and Eileen's palm print was later found on the interior door handle of the vehicle. Peter's body was never found, and Eileen eventually would try to help authorities locate his body. And, you know, she said, I also killed him in self-defense. I left him right where he laid, so I don't know why they can't find his body, but they never did. Troy Burris was a 50-year-old sausage salesman from Ocala. He was reported missing on July 31st, 1990. 
His body was located on August 4th, just five days later, on State Road 19 in Marion County, and Burris suffered also two gunshot wounds. Charles Richard Dick Humphreys was a retired Air Force major, a a former child abuse investigator for the state of Florida, and a former police chief. His body was found on September 12, 1990 in Marion County. He was fully clothed when he was found, and he had been shot six times in the head and the torso. Walter Antonio was Eileen's final victim. He was 62 years old. He was a trucker, a part-time security guard, and a reserve police officer. He also presumably picked up Eileen for her services, and his naked body was found on November 19, 1990, near a remote logging road in Dixie County. He'd been shot four times, and his car was found four days later in Brevard County, Florida. On July 4th of 1990, both Tyree and Eileen were seen abandoning Sam's car, like I said earlier, um, his their fourth victim, or I should say Eileen's fourth victim, after they were involved in a car accident. Witnesses saw them arguing as they left the car and throwing beer cans off into the woods. Using fingerprints that they located from that incident, they were able to identify Eileen based on her previous criminal involvement in the state of Florida, and a media campaign was launched to help try to locate Eileen and her accomplice, Tyria. On January 9th of 1991, Eileen was arrested on an outstanding warrant in Volusia County. Tyria was actually located and arrested the next day in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She had gone home to visit her family for the holidays, and so when authorities found that out, they sent the local police department to her family's home in Scranton, and she was she was arrested up there. Now, the authorities didn't think that Tyria had anything to do with any of the, the murders, so when they picked her up in Pennsylvania, essentially they offered her prosecutorial immunity if she agreed to help elicit a confession from Eileen. So they brought her back to Florida, and they, they told her to tell Eileen that her mother paid for her to come back to Florida to pick up some of her belongings, and they asked her to call Eileen and say, hey, the heat, you know, it's really hot down here. The cops are all over me. I need you to help me clear my name because I didn't know anything about these murders. And so um, after a couple days of talking with Eileen in jail, Eileen ended up confessing to all seven murders on January 16th of 1991. And she told the authorities that Tyria probably knew about the murders, but she had no involvement with with any of them. Now, like I mentioned earlier, when police began to interview Eileen, she said that all seven murders were committed in self-defense. You have to be the unluckiest prostitute ever if every John that you pick up over a year's span of time is so violently assaulting you that you have to feel like you got to kill them to escape the situation. Now, obviously I I know that some of these sex workers, they do get violently assaulted, but for every one of them to assault you bad enough that you have to kill them, uh, it I think is a bit of a stretch. And obviously the authorities, they saw right through this. And in January of 1992, Eileen went on trial for the murder of Dick Mallory, which was the first of her victims in Volusia County. 
Now, prosecutors for the rest of the victims in Citrus County, Marion County, Pasco County, and Dixie County, they all offered Eileen a plea bargain in exchange for avoiding the death penalty, but she never took any of these plea bargains. She wanted to stand trial for each of these murders because, like I said, she believes that she committed these murders in self-defense. The only county that didn't offer her a plea bargain was Pasco County, where the third victim, Charles Carskadden, was killed. And they held out for the death penalty. And so I guess Eileen kind of had it in her head, well, this one county is going to go, they're going to go for broke. So if they get it, then I might as well try to fight it in every other county. So like I said, she never took any of the, the plea bargains. So during the first trial uh, for Mallory's death, Obviously, like I said, she claimed self-defense, stating that Mallory was trying to rape her. But when she gave her initial recorded confession, she actually stated that Mallory was not, in fact, trying to rape her. And that confession was allowed to be played in the courtroom, despite her defense team trying to get it kicked out. And prosecutors were also allowed to introduce the other murders from the other counties to illustrate the, the pattern of violent criminal behavior. On January 27th of 1992, it took the jury in the Mallory case just 91 minutes of deliberation to convict Eileen and sentence her to death. Now at this point, Eileen still had five more trials to go, and she wasn't very happy about her public defense team, so she fired them all on May 4th, 1992. And this is where it kind of gets interesting. So there's a woman by the name of Arlene Prail who was a self-described born-again Christian, and she saw Eileen's story in the newspaper, and she decided that she wanted to try to help Eileen. So she legally adopted Eileen, and she wound up hiring an attorney by the name of Steve Glazier to defend Eileen. And Steve was kind of a, a relatively inexperienced attorney. He didn't have any big-time uh, trials under his belt, he did a lot of civil stuff. In fact, he he helped um, Arlene basically draft up a contract for a book deal about Eileen, and she, he oversaw the adoption process um, for Arlene to adopt Eileen. And so that was kind of his cup of tea, so to speak. He wasn't a big-time trial lawyer, and so it was kind of questionable hiring him to defend Eileen and... When Steve would talk to Eileen, she would often voice her preference of an expedient death penalty process as opposed to life in prison. So, uh, based on Glazier's legal advice and Prale's encouragement, Eileen ended up pleading no contest to three of the remaining charges. And those were for the cases of Humphreys, Humphreys Burris, and Spears. And then she pled guilty to two of the remaining charges for Antonio and Carscadden, and she wound up getting the death sentence in all of those for a total of six death sentences. Now, after she pled no contest and guilty to all of the remaining charges, she then began her appeals process, and she tried to appeal over and over again, and she argued that media exposure about the case and her own, her own alcoholism kind of altering her mental state should be mitigating factors in her sentencing. But the appeals court denied all of her attempts. She she appealed to the legal counsel. Um, the Capital Collateral Regional Council stepped in and tried to help 
uh, arguing that that Steve Glazer's counsel was not adequate, but their appeal was denied as well. The courts basically said, listen, Steve Glazer uh, is a bar certified attorney and they chose to hire him. So, you know, you get what you get. (laughs) And they denied her appeal. Eileen's mental health started to decline as her time in prison started to stretch out. She made claims that the prison staff were pumping sonic waves into her jail cell via an intercom. She she claimed that the prison staff was contaminating her food by spitting in it and urinating it. And she also frequently complained that low water pressure, strip searches, and constant catcalling from the male guards were having a severe, a severe effect on her mental well-being. And she, she wound up writing a 25-page complaint to the corrections department who basically said that all of the allegations were unfounded. Eileen again made the decision that she did not want to spend the rest of her life on death row and waived all further appeals in her own effort to expedite um, the execution process. So in September of 2002, Governor Jeb Bush signed Eileen's death warrant in October 9th, 2002 at 947. She was executed by lethal ejection in the Florida State Prison. She declined a final meal, opting instead for a simple cup of joe. And when they asked her if she had anything to say before they injected her with the lethal concoction, her statement was, yes. I would just like to say that I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back. Like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. After she was executed, Eileen's body was cremated and she was spread underneath a tree in her native Michigan near where she grew up by her friend Dawn. Now going back to Tyria Moore, you might be interested as to why she got off scot-free after all of this. Tyria said that After the first murder, Eileen came home and said, basically, I have something I need to tell you. Eileen then went on to explain how she had killed Mallory, and from that point forward, Tyria basically said, I don't want to hear anything else about any of this. But she knew something was up because Eileen would continue to come home with things that didn't necessarily belong to her, and Tyria was afraid to ask where they came from, and like I said, she didn't want to know. She also claimed that Eileen was becoming more and more aggressive as their relationship continued on. And despite Eileen repeatedly assuring Tyria that she would not hurt her, uh, Tyria was still afraid of Eileen and what she would do to her if she ended up calling authorities about her suspicions. So ultimately, uh, the authorities bit, bit off on Tyria's story. They believed her. They, they understood that she did know about one of the murders for sure. But, uh, you know, going back, obviously they offered her immunity if she would get Eileen to confess because they didn't believe she was actually involved in any of the killings. And ultimately, that's, that's what ended up happening. Uh, I couldn't find much on Tyria. I know that she lives now in Pennsylvania with her wife and her family. Um, again, going back to Eileen's son, it was a closed adoption when Eileen was only 15 years old, so there's no information out there on her son. So there you go, there's Eileen Warness, female serial killer of the 1989-1990 time frame, seven victims, and she was 
executed in Florida State Prison. Pretty interesting case. I, I found it pretty interesting that she, you know, ultimately she had a legal def- defense team. It was a public defense team, but, you know, it, it was a team. It seemed pretty adequate, and she ended up firing them to hire this lawyer who who worked for a woman in my opinion, whose ultimate goal was to cash in on this story. And, you know, in a roundabout way, that's what led to her expedited execution because uh, Steve Glazier was not really uh, adept at trial cases. And ultimately, he just urged her to plead guilty. And after doing so, she just asked for the needle to get it all over with. So, Yeah, that's it. That's Eileen. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope to come back on the next episode and tell you that we have broken ground, so please cross your fingers. (laughs) Say a prayer for us. We are ready to get this process started. But until then, have a fantastic week. God bless you, and God bless America.